Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me here. I, I do just want to start off by saying how thankful I am to uh, be here this morning. We think about you often at Grace Fellowship Church, and uh, as much as we remember you, we try to pray for you. Uh, obviously, Royal York Baptist Church has a very special place in our hearts, and uh, it's just been deeply encouraging to see how the Lord has been working uh, in this local body of Christ. You know, when Pete called me last Thursday and asked me to jump in to preach for him, uh, we talked about it, we worked things out, and um, after that we started to talk about what I would preach on, and funny enough, at Grace Fellowship Church, I've been slowly working my way through the book of Colossians over the last year, and it just so happened that when Josh Brown was preaching, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, he and I were preaching from the exact same text. So he was, he was doing a larger section. He was preaching from Colossians 3, 5 to 17. And on that exact same Sunday, I was preaching from 15 to 17. And so it just made a lot of sense to Pete and I that I would pick up from where you left off and continue this little short study of Colossians. So, uh, Josh, I don't know if this screws up your future preaching schedule. I'm sorry if it does. But I blame Peter because he agreed to this. So you could, you could take it up with him. Anyways, I'd like to invite you to take your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3, and uh, we'll be reading from verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. And this is often known as the household code in Colossians. Now, one of the things I want you to do before I read this is, is pay attention to the repetition. A repetition is a very important literary tool that the biblical authors use to show emphasis it helps us to understand what the main point is. And so as I read this, I want to see if you can spot what is repeated in this text. But before I do, let me, let me quickly pray, and then I'll read the word for us again. Father, we know that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so I pray, dear God, that you would help us to feed on your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would renew our minds by your truth, cause the word of Christ to dwell in us richly as I teach and admonish from the word. And we pray, dear God, that by your spirit and by your help, you would help us to put to death and to put away all the sinful behaviors, attitudes, and actions of our old life and help us to put on as holy and beloved children of God. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So follow along with me, and I want to see if you can spot the repetition. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. This is what Holy Scripture says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, 
knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Anybody catch the repeated word in this text? You can say it out. Anybody catch it? I heard someone say it over there. Lord. The word Lord. In the short little text, the word Lord is repeated six times in our English Bibles. But one thing that you need to understand is that if we were reading this in the original language, we would actually see the word used nine times. And that's because every time Paul uses the word master, he's actually using the exact same word as Lord. And so I want you to think about that. Nine times Paul is using the word Lord. And only twice does it refer to human lords, but all the other occurrences of the word refer to our Lord Jesus Christ. Which tells us then that in this passage, Paul means to emphasize the Lord, Lordship of Jesus Christ in, in all that's being commanded. And so in the first half of the letter in chapters 1 and 2, Paul spends a lot of time um, with, with his main focus on elevating Jesus Christ. He is the all-sufficient Savior. He is the only one that you truly need. He is the supreme Lord over everything, over old creation, over new creation. He is the single head of the church. And we as Christians, saved by grace alone, are now to literally do everything in light of the reality that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And that's what Josh preached on last time he was up here. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, when we get to verse 18 here, Paul zooms in on how we as Christians live under Christ's lordship, specifically as a wife, as a husband, as a child, as a father, and I think in our present context, as an employee and an employer. So, in other words, here is the Christ-ordered life. It's important to start off with the Lordship of Jesus Christ because that's the lens by which we must see and understand everything in this text. This isn't just a random set of moral rules without, without any reason behind it. This is how the Lord Jesus, in His supreme authority, orders and structures our life and our relationships in a way that blesses his people and that glorifies his name. And that's important to remember that these commands are a blessing to his people. The families that I've seen and the people that I've seen faithfully live this command out are some of the happiest families I have ever met. And so for some of you, this may all be very new, Uh, I know a lot of you, and I'm assuming that for uh, many of you, this is going to be things that you are familiar with. And whatever the case may be, I want to encourage you to carefully examine where you are in your life right now, in light of the truth of Scripture, and ask whether you are living in obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because I believe that there is something here for every single one of us here today. Now, what Paul does is basically structure this section into three different pairs. So the first pair has to do with the marriage relationship. This is how wives and husbands are to relate to one another. And then you have the second pairing, which has to do with what I'm calling the family relationship between children and specifically their fathers. 
And then the third pairing, which in our present context is the workplace relationship between employees and employers. So we're just going to make our way through each pairing one by one. So here's point number one if you want to follow along in your bulletin. This is a marriage ordered by Christ. And he starts by addressing wives first. And he says one thing. Wives, submit to your husbands. Not to every man in the church. This is your husband, your personal husband. The man that you are married to. The man that you made a vow to. And so we need to begin by asking the question, what does it mean to submit? Because this means a lot of different things to a lot of different people in our day and age. Now, since the word carries with it such a bad stigma, sometimes Christians try to lessen the blow of the word by using words like, submission means respect, right? Because that's how Paul talks about it um, a little bit in Ephesians, right? Wives, respect your husbands. You know, there's some Bible translations, one called the message that puts the emphasis on wives are to be understanding and supportive. And those things are, are all true, right? You, these things are vital in a marriage that a wife respects and understands and supports her husband. But I would contend that that falls short of the true intent of the word. Yes, respect, understanding, and support is, 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 is key in any marriage relationship. And it is not less than that, but it is more than that. Okay, to submit literally means to place yourself under authority. It is placing yourself under authority, which means then that you, wives, are putting yourself in a position where you are going to yield to your husband, where you will accept your husband's decisions, where you will follow your husband in the way that he leads the family. This doesn't mean that you don't have a voice or a place to talk in your marriage. I mean, we know this across the board, that communication is, is vital to any relationship, especially in the marriage. And it doesn't mean, definitely, that you are somehow inferior or less valuable than your husband. Because if that's true, then it's also true that Jesus was inferior and less valuable to God the Father. Because Jesus himself submitted to God the Father. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 36, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That's submission language. So here's what we need to understand. Function does not determine value. Okay? Function does not determine value. We, we tend to believe in the opposite, that whatever we are capable of doing, whatever our function is, that shows us how valuable we are in society. But the Bible tells us something very different, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of God are equal in value and yet distinct in function. And in the same way, a husband and a wife are equal in value. They're co-heirs with Christ, yet distinct in function. And so in the infinite wisdom of God, He has ordained that there would be a hierarchical order in the marriage where the husband leads and the wife humbly and joyfully chooses to follow. 
Now, it's important at this point that I make one thing clear here, and what I'm about to say really applies to every single relational pairing that follows in this text. Because you'll see that within every relationship listed, the wife and the husband, child and the father, employee and employer, the second person of each pairing is given by Christ a greater authority in that relationship to lead and to direct. But if they compel you to go directly against the clear commandments of God without any justifiable reason, then that is grounds to disobey. You are not bound to follow. So that's my one big caveat here before I continue on. For the rest of the sermon, everything that I say is going to be with the assumption that these authority figures in our relationships are not directly and clearly calling you to sin against God without justifiable reason. Okay? So, without out of the way, husbands lead in the marriage as the head of the home. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. And here's why, as verse 18 continues, look with me there. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. For a wife to submit to her husband is fitting. It means that that, that's what makes sense and that is what is appropriate, not according to the customs of our day, but according to how Jesus structures His kingdom and His people. This is fitting in the Lord. This is what is pleasing to the Lord. This is what is consistent with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, the command for wives to submit to their husbands isn't given in isolation. So we need to be careful that we, just, we, don't, we don't see this as just a one-sided thing. Paul, it's not like Paul is addressing wives and then he says nothing to husbands. No, no, no. In, in the marriage, both the wife and the husband have their God-given responsibilities to one another. So... As wives are called to submit to their husbands, husbands, my brothers, you are called to be gentle and loving with your wives. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So I think it's interesting, it's interesting here that Paul gives wives just one thing to do and he gives husbands two things to do. One is an exhortation and one is a prohibition. The exhortation to husbands is this, love your wives. And the prohibition, what not to do, is not be harsh. So the society in Paul's day would have seen this command and been a little bit confused because wives in this time, in this day and age, in in Paul's day and age, would have merely been seen as, as the property of their husbands. There was no obligation to love your wives. There was no obligation to to sacrificially care for them. But, But in Christ, husbands are not to abuse and dominate over their wives. Rather, they are to sacrificially go low and serve their bride with sensitivity and care. Now, the parallel passage in Ephesians fleshes out what this kind of Christian love looks like. So in Ephesians 5, verse 25... Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, I think sometimes husbands can read this passage and think, 
Yes, absolutely. I would, I would give up my life for my wife. I mean, we can go all Bruno Mars and think, you know, I'd catch a grenade for her. I'd, I'd throw my hand on a blade for her. I'd jump in front of a train for her. <laughs> Let's be honest. How many of us are ever going to get into a position where we're going to have to catch a grenade for our wives in order to save them? We can have all of these big, noble resolutions like this, and that is fantastic. That is great. But my question for you here this morning is, are you, brothers, husbands, future husbands, willing to lay down your life every day in all the mundane, day-to-day tasks of everyday life? Are you, my brothers, willing to lay down your life daily to do the lesser things, like clean the diaper, clean the dinner table, wash the dishes, get the laundry, watch the kids, even though you're so tired so that your even more tired wife can go and have some time alone? Brothers, how can we say that we are willing to lay down our lives for our wives if we won't even turn off the TV for them? If we are to love like Christ loves, then our love must be sacrificial as Jesus sacrificed his life for his bride, the church. Our love must be unconditional as Jesus loved us while we were still sinners. And our love must be full of good works that actually bless and benefit our wives because when Jesus loves us, it does something And his great love has saved us from eternal death. He died so that we would actually live. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loves his bride. And here's the second thing. Do not be harsh with them. In the summer of 2011, I called Kathy's dad. Kathy's my wife. And uh, I asked him for his permission to marry his daughter. And... I'm sure a lot of you know that's probably one of the most nerve-wracking points in any man's life. And so after a good long conversation, he, he gave me his blessing. It was a very encouraging time, but he said one thing to me. And he asked me for one thing. He said, Steve, don't ever be harsh with your words to Kathy. And I took that request to heart on that day. And I resolved before the Lord that I would honor that as best as I could in my life with her. And so in my marriage vows, I wrote these exact words. Kathy, I promise not to be harsh in speech, but to love, cherish, and protect you with all my heart. You know, I've often wondered why my father-in-law, out of all the things he could have asked me to do, asked me for this one thing. And as I was studying this passage, I wondered why, out of all the things Paul could have prohibited husbands to do, he only included this one thing. And the more I thought about it, and the more that I reflected on my life as a husband, it seemed very clear to me that with husbands who are called to lead in the marriage, the temptation to be harsh comes easily, it comes frequently, and if present, is very harmful to our wives. No wife flourishes in a harsh 
marital environment. And it happens all too easily. It's discouraging, it's destructive, it is debilitating, and this is not consistent with the call to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus never, ever gives an excuse for husbands to be harsh with their wives. Jesus is never harsh with his bride, even if his bride, the church, can be harsh with him. Husbands, love and be gentle with your wives. You know, when there are moments of conflict in a marriage, I think it's pretty easy for husbands to think, well, you know, this, this would all be resolved if my wife was just a little more submissive. Or on the other side, for wives to think, oh, this would be so much easier if my husband just loved me and, and if he was gentle with me even in my weaknesses. And that may be true. But I would encourage you to think less about how your spouse needs to change and think more carefully about how you personally can grow in holiness and live your life in such a way to create an environment in your marriage that makes it easier for your spouse to follow their God-given commands. If you're a rebellious wife, it's only natural that it will make it harder for your husband to love and be gentle with you. If you're an insensitive, unloving, and harsh husband, it makes sense that it'll make it that much harder for your wife to submit to you. So, husbands and wives, my encouragement to you is to let repentance and growing in holiness begin with you first, not with the other. Let it begin with you first. This is the Christ, the, the marriage ordered by Christ. Here's point number two, a family ordered by Christ. First to children. Children, obey your parents in everything. Okay, now typically at this point, people like to ask the question, well, what about the 50-year-old who's been you know, married for 25 years, has, has kids of their own who are already in college? Does that full-grown adult still need to obey his or her parents? And I would say, yes, you need to honor your mother and father at all times, but you do not need to obey them in everything. First of all, that would just be unrealistic. But secondly, I think that this passage and the parallel passage in Ephesians implies that Paul is referring to younger children in age here. So there's a distinction, right? These are children who are not yet married, so they haven't left father and mother to, be, to hold fast and be bound together with their spouse. And they are children who are still being actively raised by their parents. Now it's important to recognize that the Bible doesn't give any specific age for when a child becomes an adult. What makes sense in one place or in one culture might not make sense in another place and in another culture. And so even within our own country, different provinces legally define an adult at a different age. And so since we live here in Ontario, where you legally become an adult at the age of 18, when it comes to this command to obey your parents, the ones that I am talking to, and listen up, are those of you who are under the age of 18, who are not yet married, and who are still living at home dependent on your parents. 
Okay, so if that describes you, and kids, listen up, because this passage is about you and what you're supposed to do, all right? And it's not crazy complicated, younger children. It's not crazy confusing. God expects one thing of you, and that is to obey your parents in everything. And all the parents are like, yes. Children, obey your parents, not just when you feel like obeying, not just when you're particularly liking your parents that day, and not just when you're in a good mood. God calls you to obey your parents in everything, big and small. And you need to actually listen to what they say, and not only listen and understand, but go and do what they are asking you to do. Because that's what obedience is. It's actively following instruction. And the great encouragement for you is found here in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Meaning when you listen to your parents and obediently do what they ask of you, just remember this, that makes Jesus happy. Jesus is pleased when children obey their parents because that is how he has ordered his creation to be. And so as children are to obey their parents, parents are to lead and love with care, which then brings me to my next point. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Okay, Paul says fathers here, but this does not mean mothers, you are excused from this, right? This is something that both mothers and fathers should obey. But I think Paul here addresses fathers only because in this, in, in this time, it's a patriarchal society and fathers are the representative head of the home and he carries the leading responsibility and the greater authority. And so he says, fathers... As the head of the home, don't provoke your children in such a way that they become disheartened and lose all motivation, where there is no joy and laughter in the home. Our children, especially when they're super young, are going to inevitably become upset with us, right? Especially when we ask them to do things that they don't want to do, because they may not always understand that what we're asking them to do and what we're requiring is actually for their good and for their safety, And so we need to be careful that we don't simply retreat and pull back at every sign of anger and discouragement in our children. Otherwise, we will not be parenting faithfully. What Paul has in mind here is the kind of provocation that occurs from an overbearing and oppressive parenting style that unjustly embitters a child to anger. So let me give you a few examples of what that looks like. One, you have the perpetual fault-finding father. This is the kind of father that just constantly points out and tries to correct everything that is wrong with his kids. There is barely any room for error or mistake. Everything must be perfect according to his standards. And so the child grows up in this environment never feeling like they're good enough and accepted. 
Because the only words that are coming out of the father's mouth is, is don't do this, don't do that, stop this, stop that, put this away, put that down. No, 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 and no. If that is you, brother, you are bound to provoke your children to anger. There's the grouchy father now. This is the kind of father that comes home from work feeling super tired and irritable. He's upset about something that's happened in the office, but instead of dealing with it at work or leaving it at the office, he takes it all out on his children for no good reasons. You have the inconsistent father. You know, these days at the dinner table, my daughter Corey, my oldest one, she's, she's five years old, by the way. Uh, she keeps saying to me, Daddy, don't talk with your mouth full. <laughs> and guess where she learned that from? That's something that I tell her all the time. You know, you know, this morning, actually, we had the exact same conversation. Corey's been talking a lot about uh, bad people. I don't know if she got that from a book or from a movie. But she asked me this morning, Daddy, are there bad people in the world? And I'm like, yes, but you know what? The Bible actually says that none of us is good. No, no one is good. We're, we're all bad people. And Corey's like, so, so, so you're a bad person? I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, because you, you, you talk with your mouth full, right? <laughs> And I'm like, Corey, you have no idea how much I need Jesus every day. Kids pick up on these inconsistencies very quickly. This is the kind of father that tells his children to do one thing while he does the complete opposite. And even if that is done for a good reason, he does not take the time to patiently and gently explain why. Fathers... We need to be careful that we don't use our God-given authority to beat our children into submission. That is not what God is calling you to do. God is calling you to raise obedient children that are encouraged, not discouraged. Children who have a flourishing, vibrant heart, not a, not a not losing heart in the home. Oh, brothers, we have such a great privilege as fathers to reflect the tender and loving care of our Heavenly Father. And as Josh read for us this morning from a call to worship, God is a compassionate God. He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. He comes and He cares for His children. This is a family ordered by Christ. Lastly, here's a workplace ordered by Christ. Now, I'm sure you notice in this section, Paul uses words like bondservants. Uh, other translations use the word slaves, which would be an appropriate translation. So he's using words like slaves and masters that are a little bit foreign to us in our present context. Like we don't have these roles that exist in our Western society today. And when we do think about slaves and masters, they mean something very negative considering the history of slavery in North America, rightly so. But the thing that we have to understand that uh, we have to understand is that in Paul's day, it would have been a common place for certain families who were wealthier, even within the church, to have servants who worked within the home as a means of making a living and caring for their own families. And I'm sure that some of them would have been very harsh and toxic environments. 
But that doesn't mean that was true across the board. In some of these places, it would have been a very healthy, loving, and caring environment. And so notice here that Jesus does not abolish the social structures of the day. He does not condemn the institution of servanthood. He says, if you can be free, in in 1 Corinthians, if you can be free, then then go ahead and, and, and do that. But this here is for both servants and masters as they are called to live under the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. Now, although there are places in our world, even today, where this would apply more directly, in our context, the employee and employer relationship would probably be the closest thing to the servant-master relational dynamic. Okay, so the workplace is the context by which we are going to apply these texts. And so first, employees, work hard with integrity for your employers. Verse 22, bond servants or employees, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters or your bosses and employers. It doesn't mean, it doesn't matter if the work is pleasant or unpleasant, challenging or dull, exciting or boring. If your boss gives you work, whatever it is, you are to get it done. And to get it done with your heart and with your intentions in the right place, that matters. God doesn't want you to just obey everything grumbling the entire time. He goes on in verse 22 and he says, Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Look, if you're just working hard when your bosses are around in order to impress them and win their favor, but as soon as they're gone, you you tend to slack off them, brothers and sisters, that is not the kind of work ethic that honors Christ. We are to work with sincerity of heart. That means being free from deceit and lies. Don't pretend to be faithful only when your boss is around or when your coworkers are present. Be faithful all the time. Do your work with reverence for Christ. You know, since the end of March, uh, the vast majority of us have begun working from home. And there are some really good things that came out of that, right? We get to spend more time with our families. We don't have to wake up as early to get to work on time. We're not coming home later. But I wonder, with our bosses and our coworkers never being around anymore, in the last four and a half months, can you truly say before the Lord that you have been working with integrity? For all the hours that you've been paid to do work, have you been working all of those hours without inappropriately scrolling through the media, watching videos on YouTube, shopping online, surfing through social media? No one's watching, right? I suspect that this has been a great struggle for many of us. And that's because the temptation to give in to all of the distractions around us are much greater when no one is around to keep us accountable. And we know that sin grows in isolation. 
And that's why our primary motivation cannot be to work for the praises of men, but for the pleasures and the glory of Christ. Paul says in verse 23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. No, no matter what your job is, no matter where you work, work hard. Put your heart and your soul into your efforts and ultimately do it all to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that changes everything that you do. Many of you know Mes McConnell. He's the uh, director of 20 schemes in Scotland. The, the schemes are like uh, the projects in the States, very poor communities. And uh, Mes McConnell and 20 Schemes, it's a, it's a ministry that we love at Grace Fellowship Church and we support. I remember hearing Mez talk a couple years ago about a man who recently got saved in his church. And this man was coming out of a very harsh environment, a lot of drug abuse, uh, not have, he hasn't learned a lot of skills, didn't have a great education, but he somehow managed to land a humble job cleaning dirty toilets. So this isn't like a skilled janitorial job. This is merely cleaning dirty, filthy toilets. And Mess said that this brother was one of the happiest guys he's ever seen in his life. And every time Mez would see him, he would say, I'm cleaning toilets for Jesus, baby. Ultimately, it's not about the kind of work you do, but who you're doing it for. I believe that a man humbly and joyfully cleaning dirty toilets, making a small, modest amount of money, can find greater fulfillment in his job than a CEO running a billion-dollar company if he is doing it to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Work wholeheartedly for the Lord and as you do, keep this in mind. Verse 23 again, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. So just think about that. You may be in a place where you are working in a very unrewarding environment, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you an inheritance. And remember, this is coming from the Lord, meaning this is coming from Jesus who owns everything under the sun. And he's saying, I've got an inheritance for you. You are serving, verse 24, the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And that means you may be in a place where you are working, where your boss is being unfair and unjust, and that's when we need to keep our eyes fixed on our great purpose, which is that we are ultimately working to serve Jesus. And, and we can patiently endure wrongdoings because right here the Lord promises that he will repay the wrongdoer. This is full recompense. So to those of you who are employers, keep this in mind and seek to be just and fair with your employees. I'm almost done here. <laughs> Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That means for those of you who are in leadership positions at work, be just and be fair with your employees. Treat everyone with equal opportunity. 
Don't ever cheat them. Deal with workplace conflict objectively. And no matter how high you rise in rank, know that there's always at least one person, one being, who is always above you. And you are going to be held accountable to him one day because he is our master. All that we are called to do in our marriages, families, and workplace under the lordship of Jesus Christ is good. It's good. And when his word is obeyed from every side, it produces great blessings and great joy, but that doesn't mean it's easy to do. And as I've been preaching, I hope you've been evaluating yourself, and if you have, you might be in a place where, where you realize that you have failed and that you have not lived up to Christ's standards. And if that's you, whether this is the first time or the 10 millionth time coming to Jesus because of the same sin, I would still encourage you to go to Christ. He's not one who is going to make you suffer in your guilt and your shame. He says, come to me. He is gentle and he is lowly in heart. He says to to take my yoke upon you and learn from me because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that this is why Jesus came in the first place. So that we as sinners and broken people would come to him. He came and he bore our sins. He died on the cross to pay for the penalty of all that we've done wrong. And he rose again so that we might live. So run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to do exactly that. To not put our hope in our own performance, but in what Christ has done in his life, death, resurrection, and what he is now doing, interceding on our behalf. We thank you that we have an all-sufficient Savior and the supreme Lord over all creation. In his name we pray. Amen.